Hey, up here, Astro Boy. If you think you can just show up and take our top prize spot, you're wrong. Dead wrong. Help me get out of here. I'll help you. With my foot to infinity and my foot. Boom. <laughs> to infinity and your mom. <laughs> In the vacuum of space, they cannot hear you scream. Hello and welcome to 32 Fans Movies, where we discuss all things movies, past, present, and occasionally even the future. My name is Sammy Chester. And I am Will Seaman. Today we are going to be talking about some new releases from June 2019, as well as Toy Story 4 and the movies from our childhood that affected us the most. Yeah, you can't do Toy Story without talking about childhoods. It's thematically right there. We have Av Sinensky, the guest, joining us as always. Pretty much our host at this point. Av, what's happening to you in the last few weeks besides movies? Anything? Not much else, actually. I'm getting a little slack with that for that at home and from some of my friends. That is why you're our movie guest, because you have movies on the top of your mind, and we appreciate that. Let's go right into recent watches. Will, what's your listeners from June, which big month for movies? What is a void, and what in June is must-watch? Unfortunately, most of what I saw in June, I would say a void. It's really been full of big disastrous... Like big releases, uh, you know, Men in Black International was a big flop. The new Shaft movie was a big flop. Dark Phoenix, big flop. But I will recommend a little more indie movie, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It was a big hit out of Sundance, directed by someone you've never heard of and starring <laughs> a bunch of people you've never heard of, plus Danny Glover. It's about this man living in San Francisco, as the title would suggest, and he's trying to reclaim this home that his grandfather built uh, that he grew up in. It's really just fantastic. It's hilarious and dramatic. Will, how does it play to the movies that we saw in 2018? Because there was a few Oakland-esque kind of also African-American movies in 2018 that sort of dealt with somewhat similar themes, right? Yeah. I would compare it to Blind Spotting. I believe that was an Oakland movie, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it touches on a lot of the same themes of the place you grew up in not, not really wanting you anymore and trying to reconcile that. I don't like it as much as I like blind spotting. That was like a big, big favorite of mine last year, but it really hits on a lot of the same themes. Anything people should avoid? Anything other critics are saying is great that you think people should avoid? Annabelle Comes Home has been getting a pretty good response from critics, and I will just say that it felt like a Halloween episode of a Disney Channel show. I haven't even heard of that. Av, had you seen that? Uh, I've heard of it, I have not seen it. It is the third Annabelle movie, another in the long line of Conjuring spinoffs. Okay, so it has sequelitis already as a problem. I think they need to stop. Av, what's your watch movie of the month? The movie that I, I thought I, I was most looking forward to seeing was Yesterday, the oh, Beatles yeah. movie. I haven't seen that. Yeah, it had an, like, I thought an incredible trailer. It has an incredible premise. It's the type of thing that really, I was as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I'm seeing that as soon as that comes out. I wish that the, the people that made the movie were as interested in the premise that they had set up as I was <laughs> because they kind of abandoned it. I wouldn't say abandoned it, but they just they weren't really interested in probing it that much. They, it kind of turns into a rom-com about 20 minutes into the movie with the and. At that point, he could have been like any type of musician that's trying to be successful. The the whole Beatles aspect to it, and what would a world like be like without the Beatles, and messages about artistry and who's the true creator of this music. They kind of really leave that off to the side, and I wish they had really explored that more. But it, I thought it was still worth seeing. If you like the Beatles, there's a bunch of scenes where they play Beatles music in it, and it's a solid rom com if that's what you're into. But it's a shame because it could have been a lot better. Uh, is it just me? I feel there's a lot of movies coming out in the last year using music not necessarily rocket man and bohemian rhapsody but movies where there's like a musician's journey is the main story 
obviously the movie last year with Lady Gaga. Yesterday that just came out, Wild Rose is another movie that came out recently that's getting a lot of love. Her Smell, a movie I hated that came out earlier this year that a lot of critics love. A few others maybe that we'll get into. Are we going through like a music story moment or are those movies always in, in theaters? I think it's, you know, those are, it's a pretty standard formula for a movie to focus on. Rock star or singer or something like that. It doesn't feel like it's standing out to me as a recent trend. Did you see Wild Rose, the movie I referred to? Not yet. I was hoping to maybe go see it this weekend, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah, that's sort of my missed in June, really hoping to make up soon. Did you see it, Will? Uh, no, I didn't. Another one, though, that came out recently, Teen Spirit, falls into that category. Yeah, maybe one of these we'll revisit in a future month, and as a listener suggested, we'll put together sort of a music-orientated thematic hit list as well along that. Of any movie that you really loved from this month, yesterday you said was sort of not super recommended. Really love, I wouldn't say I really loved anything. Um, I really enjoyed the Bob Dylan documentary, the Rolling uh, Thunder Rolling Thunder review on Netflix. You know, if, if you like Bob Dylan, I think that it's a pretty safe bet you'll enjoy it. I think even if you don't necessarily love Bob Dylan, there are things about it that were interesting. The documentary kind of plays fast and loose with the truth a lot, so it's not quite a traditional documentary in that regard, but the, the, the scenes of the concert footage are outstanding. It portrays Dylan in a way that I don't think I've ever seen on screen before that I thought just was really fascinating and has a host of other characters like Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell along for the ride. Allen Ginsberg, Sharon Stone even. Well, yeah. <laughs> Randomly. Exactly. Do you think the movie works? It had too many narratives. It was trying to do too many things. The movie was trying to be five movies in one. Yeah, that's fair. And Did that work for you? Overall, it worked for me. You know, I, I found it to be a very enjoyable two plus hours. Sat down and watched concert scenes, watched some weird scenes of people hanging out on a bus, some interesting interviews. It maybe didn't necessarily cohere into like one movie for me, but it was two hours of fun. Either you guys seen Ronaldo and Clara? That's a 1978 movie that Bob Dylan made based upon the Rolling Thunder review. He made a movie based upon the footage, which is the same footage used in this documentary by Martin Scorsese. Right, I have not seen it. Yeah, that's a no for me. Apparently it's all. Uh, anything else you want to harp on from the last month? I'll echo Will's sentiments on The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I thought it was really very good. It's, it's a little bit surreal and kind of not necessarily for everybody, but if you like those types of movies, just like really well-made, well-crafted, incredible score, incredible visuals. There's just these amazing wide-angle shots of the streets and hills of San Francisco that just really connects you to that city and that place, which is really, you know, the movie's all about connection to like a physical location, be it the city itself or a specific home that he lived in there. And I thought it was just like a really emotional, powerful movie that I, I thought was really great. So we're definitely going through a, and I think importantly, seeing Black Lives Matter and related uh, themes related to African-American experiences in the U.S. We're definitely seeing that in movies, I would say, in the last two years, clearly driven from conversations happening in society. I think it's sort of interesting to see that because you don't always see that sort of that direct line from conversations happening in society into theaters and then what you know what we're talking about at the water cooler. The movie I would not recommend unfortunately that feeds off that as well uh, came out this month. I don't know if any of you guys saw it. It's called See You Yesterday. It's not Yesterday, the Beatles movie. See You Yesterday is Back to the Future with Black Lives Matter. Did either of you guys see it? I saw it, yeah. No, I've not seen it. Oh, okay. So it's the Netflix movie. It's not even French Netflix. You can just get it on regular Netflix. Wow. And Spike Lee is sort of the producer, and I think uh, one of his disciples is the actual director. The movie did not work for me at all. I thought thematically it was all over the place. I thought the script is disappointing. Uh, the characters just make repeatedly dumb decisions. Like, they just don't speak up. And when the solution is just to speak up, they don't speak up. 
And the saving grace of the movie is the Black Lives Matter material, not the time travel stuff, which is kind of dumb. But I just feel there's so many better Black Lives Matter-themed movies in the last year, mostly last year. Um, this kind of feeds off something you said, Will, which is seeing a movie which is good, but there's a somewhat better version of it that came out last year, which to me just leaves a bitter taste in my mouth. Av, oh, I don't know what you thought, because you saw it as well. Yeah, I thought it was okay. It's very short. It kind of just like takes the time travel for granted. As a given. Yeah, it doesn't really get into like the mechanics and how it works that much. It has an, what I thought was an amazing cameo in the first few minutes. Yeah. It just like made me laugh really hard to see them. That's probably together. the best part of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it could be. The message, the solutions to our problems aren't in the past. Kind of still have to be in touch with the past to understand how we got to this point. It was, it was interesting to kind of layer the themes of time travel onto the actual solutions to the problems that we're facing as a society today. But it's it's definitely not a must-see by any means. It was only okay. The message the movie sort of wants to leave you with, which is that Black Lives Matter is so endemic and problematic on in our society that even if you could go back to the past 100 times, you could never really fix the errors of our society. That's powerful, but the movie doesn't really focus and communicate that message enough. If it did, I think it could have been a really standout film. A movie that was standout came out earlier this year, but it's a foreign movie, so I only managed to get to it this June. Woman at War. If either of you guys have seen it, please pipe in. I love this movie. I think the movie's in Norwegian uh, because it's set, correct me if I'm wrong, in Norway or Sweden. It doesn't really matter. It's set in one of the Scandinavian countries and it's in their language. And it excels on multiple levels. It's, it's, a, it's a comedy, it's a drama. Essentially, the movie is about a middle-aged lady who has had enough about the ecological damage that big industry is having on her country. So she decides to, as the title suggests, woman at war, become a one woman army to stop big industry. The movie though has all these fantastical elements and it doesn't take itself too seriously. And at the same time, it has a fun plot, a little sort of spy drama that's woven in there. And it's just really fun. Oh, sorry, Iceland. It is not Norway, it is not Sweden. It is in Icelandish, and it is set in Iceland. Uh, my mistake. Icelandish. Yes, exactly. The fine language of Icelandish, which it. is, I will say, the language most connected to what the Vikings spoke. So Sweden and Norway can eat their heart out. Knew that you guys saw the movie. It's my top three for the year so far. Wow. Wow. I'll have to check it out. I have not seen it. I, I do see here that Jodie Foster has signed on to direct an English remake. Yeah, of that. the Gloria Bell So you if know. you want to see a probably not as good version that will be in English, you could just wait for A that. movie I would also recommend and I won't harp on is Diamantino. We discuss it in an upcoming episode we have about movies on soccer. Don't read anything about Diamantino, just sit down and watch it and you'll have a blast. But there is a movie that came out this past June, probably on all of your guys' top fives for the year, I would assume. It is on mine. And that's Toy Story 4. Av. Did this live up to the legacy of Toy Story? Because that is a difficult level to clear. I'm a huge fan of the Toy Story movies. The three Toy Story movies are among my favorite, absolute favorite movies of all time. So I was anticipating this movie very greatly, but at the same time, I kind of had a, a pit in my stomach for like a couple months before it, because you know I was nervous that it would be a flop and not live up to expectations. Would have been very easy for this just to be a cash grab, but I have to say I, I was absolutely delighted by it. Thought it was probably the funniest of the Toy Story movies. The animation in this was the most impressive that I've seen probably in any animated movie. But it should or... be. The animation should be getting better and better, and this is the biggest production level 
animation movie we've Ab seen. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a scene like right at the beginning in the oh, rain yeah. where I'm just like, okay, you guys are just like showing off now how realistic you're able to make these animated movies look. I thought it was absolutely marvelous. I thought it was a, a perfect coda for the movies. The to seeing the growth of a lot of these characters and where they each have moved forward over the ten years. It's almost like this is like a an animated before trilogy where you just kind of get to check in with these characters every now and then and see where they move. I got to take my two daughters to it, which was an awesome experience. For have your daughter seen the previous Toy Stories? My older daughter, the six-year-old, has seen all three, and she's really enjoyed them, and she really enjoyed this one. The, the, the two-year-old, uh, she's actually three now, she uh, fell asleep in the middle of this one, but she seemed to be enjoying herself until that Wait, happened. Wait, your two-year-old has not seen all three previous Toy Stories? No, this was the first one that she saw. So she was a little confused. I would imagine. She didn't know have all the backstory, but she she liked the cartoon. This explains why you've been having some you know problems at home in terms of not showing your kids all the Toy Stories before seeing Toy that Story could, Four. That could I be don't it. think Will lets that happen. No, I've never shown any of my kids the Toy Story movies. Okay, well, I will speak to all your various girlfriends and uh, check <laughs> in. Will, tell us more about your home life because Av is pouring forth. You're keeping uh, things very close to the vest. I live right now with my sister and her girlfriend of three years. We're renting a house together with our two uh, lovely cat children. I'm sure your cats at least have seen the movies with you. Oh yeah, they do. We can handle a cat. Not this one. Is that how we look on the inside? There's so much fluff. Part of the conversation for me is what I've hyped on, which is with so many disappointing sequels, Toy Story is still doing it. I have a lot of pessimism going into it because Really, since Toy Story 3, every Pixar sequel has really let me down. I felt like Incredibles 2, Monsters University, Finding Dory all weren't necessary. None of them seemed to really understand the characters of the previous movies, and none really lived up to the originals at all. I would say this is definitely my favorite Pixar sequel since Toy Story 3. I agree with Av that it was probably the funniest. Everything felt true to all the characters. I was surprised to hear you say that uh, you'd expect it to be in my top five of the year. I did thoroughly enjoy it, but I don't think there was anything with it from the movie that will really stick with me. I just didn't find it to be very impactful. The themes of the prior movies felt a lot more strong. I didn't feel that the emotional core of this movie was as strong as with the previous movies. Directly you say the movie doesn't measure up as a favorite few this year, given the contrast to Booksmart, which we discussed last month. And we noted that the side characters in that movie are not always so fleshed out. And you compare that to Toy Story 4, where the side characters really shine, especially the many new ones that are introduced in this movie. For instance, Quanah Reeves' Canadian stunt driver, Duke Kaboom. Who's a Canuck with all the luck? Duke Kaboom! Who's the most spectacular daredevil Canada has ever seen? It's a commercial! It's not real! I can't jump who is this cowardly lion-like figure unable to live up to the legend of his advertised TV achievements. Anyways, given all these great characters, I'm surprised it doesn't make an impression on you. Yeah, that's fair. I think it does benefit a little but from being the fourth movie in a franchise. Since it already has a ton of characters established, it doesn't need to take the time to reestablish Woody or Buzz or any of these characters we already know. That's fair. Everyone's coming in with, with a long history. Though that was also the reason that you and Av were concerned. Who's your favorite toy, though, in this movie? Is Woody still reign supreme? My favorite would have to be Forky, I think. I really loved his arc. I loved him uh, <laughs> thinking that he's trash because I, I relate to that a lot of the time. And I think Tony Hale did a really great job uh, as the voice actor for that character. Woody? Why am I alive? <gasps> you are a toy. You belong to Bonnie. Mm -hmm. I was made for soup, salad, maybe chili. I am not a toy. I'm a letter. I also love how we're sort of 
driven as viewers to think, oh, Forky's one of the good guys, and the female doll's one of the bad guys, so when he's left with her, he's gonna sort of be against her. But no, like, Forky's so innocent, he instantly befriends her, and it's sort of tilting to us, the viewers, that guys, like, this bad toy is not really a nemesis. She's just confused and hurt in her own way. Forky, I think, is the one who shows us that. I think without him, this movie doesn't work. Spoilers, by the way, I was really expecting the uh, female doll, uh, Maddie Maddie. Gabby Gabby. Gabby Gabby, yes. Uh, (laughs) I was really expecting her to be a character similar to Lotso or the Prospector, where she seems like inviting in this new world, but it turns out to be a twist that she's evil at the end. But we find out really quickly that she sort of has ulterior motives and kind of gets a redemption arc throughout the movie. And I thought, I was happy to see that they did something new with the with the story, because I thought Toy Story 3, as much as I loved it, the story of Lotso is very similar to that of the Prospector. I don't like three things. One, the last arc is like the last half of the movie, and there are so many endings to this movie. I was like, when are we wrapping this up? <laughs> and you can tell this is a movie made by committee. They were sort of driving somewhere, and then they're like, let's add this, and let's add this, and let's kind of make the third act even larger. I'll add the second of the three things I didn't like. To me, a movie about childhood and toys, it has to capture the sense of play and inventiveness that I associate with when I was a kid playing with my toys. And that's something that's hard to put into words, and I don't know if you guys can do a better job than me, but Inside Out, the original Toy Story, Up, those three movies capture that sense of being a child. That sense of play and inventiveness that a childhood has with his toys that maybe a producer and a director have with their movie, I didn't feel that. I think I agree with you in what you're saying, but that wasn't a detraction for me because I thought that whereas... But there's a movie about toys! Well, a movie about so, toys has to be about so, well, childhood and... Well, what I would say is I do. certainly the last two movies were about childhood and specifically about the fleeting nature of childhood. And I thought Toy Story 4 was much more a movie about parenthood. That's true. And the fleeting nature of parenthood. So, I mean, Woody basically acts as a, a parent figure throughout this whole movie for, for both Forky and for Bonnie. He's just like utterly devoted to taking care of them and sacrificing and... Whatever he's, you know, he risks his life several times to save Forky for Bonnie's benefit. He's basically this father figure. I think we're doing spoilers. You know, his final arc is about coming to grips with the fact that all parents eventually come to the point where they need to basically let go of their kids and kind of let them go on and maybe start thinking about themselves again. It was kind of similar to a Steve Rogers arc in the last Avengers movie. And I I thought that was just a really interesting direction for the movie to go in after we've seen Woody through all these years. His biggest fear in life is being replaced, being lost not being played with anymore and not having these children need him anymore and in this movie he finally learns not only to embrace that but to make an active decision to pursue that life instead. Exactly what you're pointing to Av is what really disliked. To me there has to be an in-universe logic that Toy Story is building up and they build it up in 1, 2, and 3. Uh, spoiler I haven't seen 3 but I'm assuming they do based on what you guys are saying <laughs> based upon seeing 4. They build up this sort of in-universe logic of how toys relate to their owners and when they go dead to sort of not show that they're alive and their connection to their owners and sort of that's the driving identity that toy must feel in this world of toy story and that's important to the in-universe logic and then what conclusion to toy story 4 is there's this concept of a lost toy spun to be sort of a positive represented by little bo peep who's sort of the driving narrative in some ways of the movie particularly for woody and i don't like this idea of a toy can just go off and be a lost toy and not be connected to a human because at that point, what is a toy in the universe of Toy Story? A toy is just a miniature person. It's like an alien race. It's no longer, I don't like that. I was betrayed by that ending. I get it works for Woody and the concept, as you said, of the movie's art, but it doesn't work for what a toy should be. 
uh, you are approaching it a little bit too much from a actual real life logic perspective. And I think a lot of the movie operates on, you know, kid movie logic. And a lot of it, a lot of the story itself is uh, metaphorical in nature. And I don't think you're supposed to take it uh, as literally as just Woody now being not attached to a kid. It's stressed that little Bo Peep has found this new pathway. Need to get back to our kid. Aw, Sheriff Woody always coming to the rescue. Bonnie needs Forky. Woody, who needs a kid's room when you can have all of this? Wow. There's this world which toys are small people and they're disconnected to humans. I think it's off. It doesn't fit in. I think I agree with Will. The tight logic of these movies, I think if you started unpacking each of them one by one. I'm just saying fundamentally a toy is supposed to have some relationship to humans. Once toys are just running around completely independent, where, where are we left with? You're probably right in a vacuum, but they, they obviously decided to explore the nature of these toys in a, in a different direction and kind of see them detached from the humans and see how that would work. And it made for good scenes and good good character development seeing Bo Peep back after she was out in three and see her have her own little arc in this movie I thought was really interesting and that was just this whole idea of what it means to be a lost toy and to not be attached to an owner and what that means for a toy metaphorically I thought was a very powerful idea even if it doesn't necessarily translate in terms of what it means to be a toy from our perspective are you excited for Toy Story 5 which is the adventures of Woody and little Bo Peep as they just wander the world helping out toys and you know doing whatever they wish as long as we get more Forky and more of those uh, stuffed, stuffed bears played by Key and Peele, because I thought they were also the, one of the funniest parts of this movie, uh, I'm in for as many Toy Stories as I did not do my homework. I did not know that was Key and Peele. Instantly, this movie moves up a, a notch in my, in my ranking. <laughs> they were fantastic. I, it makes so much sense, because after Forky, I loved them so much, and I didn't quite connect that they were Key and Peele, but like now they are explaining this off. Those scenes, how they were saying their plan and all that. I think the best scene of the Toy Story franchise. How do we get that key? What about the old plush rush? There you go. Oh, where did you two come from? Well, we're not doing that. Oh, what about winner, winner, chicken dinner? Yes. Oh, yeah, so good. I, of course. That's like so key and peel humor. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, I watch two to three key and peel skits a day. That's sort of addict I am. Um, that's all my YouTube recommends. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. This is... This, thank you, Av. See, everyone gains from listening to our podcast, even, even the hosts. <laughs> Av, are you concerned as a fan of Toy Story 4, as a fan of the MCU and Endgame, that Disney is just walloping everyone else? We're halfway through the movie year of 2019. I couldn't build a top 10 of movies that I really love this year so far compared to where I could at this point last year and the year before. Yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't been the best year so far. I would agree with that. You know, in particular, these big summer movies have been, it seems like a little bit silly to me to say that it's the fault of Disney, who is the only one that is making the high quality movies. I wouldn't say the only one, but the, the, the two examples that we rattled off are, you know, the, the MCU movies that have been very good this year and the Toy Story and, you know, they have Frozen coming out later this year and The Lion King. And, you know, these movies are all going to make a billion dollars and they're basically hit, hitting a home run on everything they put out. Um, and I don't know that they're just, maybe they're just like sucking up all the oxygen in the room. Are your number one movies now, you expect that to be your number one 
by the end of the year. I hope it'll be this place. Yeah, I hope mine will be this place as well. What are your number ones? My number one at the moment is Avengers Endgame. I would be surprised if it ends number one. I would imagine there's going to be some really good movies in the second half of the year that are more traditional great movies than a superhero movie, notwithstanding how much I loved it. If it ends up as number one, and Toy Story is probably in my top five now, and if, and if it's still there, then I think that means that the second half was pretty disappointing. How about you, Will? Yeah, so my number one of the year so far is Booksmart. I don't think it's the best movie I've seen this year. I think it is the most fun I've had watching a movie this year, even though I do have a lot of issues with it. But I hope that it is displaced because I don't think it comes anywhere close to any of the top five movies uh, from 2018. What would be your number one that's not the one you most enjoyed? Because I only rank things on enjoyable, and my number one is the movie I most enjoyed, which I think therefore is the best movie. I think the best movie in terms of production value, in terms of filmmaking, I would say is Climax. I can't point to any part of Climax that I think was done not exceptionally well. Except for causing a viewer such as yourself to enjoy it, number one for the year. I did enjoy it. The job of a movie maker is to make a movie you'll enjoy. Full stop. Is it? I think so. I think sometimes a movie is made to challenge the viewer. So one of our competitor movie podcasts, which I think Zach Brooks, former guest extraordinaire, hooked me onto last week, they rank movies based upon how much you sort of leave the movie and you want to discuss it. And I would put that versus enjoyability. Get out of here. How much do you enjoy the movie? <laughs> But to say, I didn't enjoy this movie so much, but it was more interesting to discuss over my dinner room table with cigars and whiskey. I mean, come on. I think a movie has to be, number one, do you enjoy it or not? I agree with you that there can be like big budget crap movies that we enjoy a lot, but like they're doing something right. You made a list of just the movies that you just like purely enjoyed the most. You're probably not going to end up with a list of what were the best movies as, as, in terms of what how I think about it. Usually with the higher quality movies that you say, are these are the great movies of the year, they often will have more depth, more things going on, a higher production value that maybe not, this was like the most fun I had that I enjoyed the most, but you could watch a very somber, depressing movie and not enjoy it, but you can appreciate that it was an incredible movie. Is Munich the most fun movie you've ever seen? I really enjoyed Munich. But Av, what would your climax be at this point? Meaning, what's your best movie of the year so far? if not your most enjoyable. Oh, for me, it also is Avengers Endgame. I thought that was the best movie I saw this year. I liked it the most. It was the most fun. It, it paid off all these things that I've been watching for all these years. It's my, to me, it's the best movie I've seen so far this year. I just would be surprised if that's the case at the end of the year because ultimately, it's a superhero movie and I think that there will probably be better movies that I see this year that are better than a really, really good superhero movie or at least I hope that's the case. If that is not the case, Will and I will tear you apart at the end of the year for considering the most critically well-done movie uh, to be a superhero. Rest assured. That's fine. I look forward to that. Just an FYI, if, if you're searching for Climax on uh, French Netflix, yeah. it, it'll, it'll take you a while to find the movie that you're looking for. <laughs> that is fair. We will hook you up because he managed to see it in theaters, I imagine, Will, right? I did, yeah. Yeah, so if he can find it in theaters in, in rural Virginia, in the, in the sticks, than in the big New York City. I actually had to drive to D.C. for it, so... Oh, wow, there you go. But, Av, you got something on the rest of us, um, you know, being in the city. Well... I, I live in Long Island, and I try to avoid going to the city whenever possible. Ob takes us right to the theme of this, this month's pod really well, which is where we were as children. Uh, because we wanted to, in honor of Toy Story, talk about our three favorite childhood movies. These are the movies that transformed you as a kid, that scared you as a kid, that inspired you as a kid. You have to have seen these movies up to your age 10. So Av, Will, and I are each different ages. And each of us also grew up in different locations, of course. 
Uh, you want to go first and give us maybe just a few honorable mentions that didn't make your top three? I'll give you one honorable mention. Deciding between this and my number three uh, would be Field of Dreams, which I believe came out in 1988 or 89. Um, I, I remember very vividly the first time I watched this movie. It was a, I had a babysitter that used to babysit for me a lot when my parents would go out, and he would bring over sports movies or other movies that he thought I would like, and we would just watch them together. And he brought over Field of Dreams, and I was just like totally enraptured by it. I've probably seen it. 25 times since wow. then uh, the combination of like just the sports elements and the fantasy elements and basically every single time I watch that movie I'm still hoping that they're gonna let Kevin Costner go out to the Ivy in the back <laughs> and every single time I'm disappointed that he doesn't get to go if you love baseball and you just like love a little bit of the mysticism there's just so many iconic scenes in that movie that just will always stick with me uh, save some of your field of dreams for a few months from now because we plan on doing an entire baseball special well yeah I, I can assure you we'll talk about it then and field of dreams is gonna need your support to, to get to the finals. <laughs> Absolutely. Will, how about you? What's an honorable mention? So the honorable mention I'll give is the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. It is probably the movie I quoted the most as a young child. It came out when I was, uh, I believe, seven years old. SpongeBob in general was a very huge part of my childhood, and I still quote it heavily to this day. Obviously. And I think it really influenced my, my sense of humor. Last month's episode, most listeners said their favorite lines were yours about SpongeBob. Oh, really? So, yeah. I, I, got, I got a lot of uh, emails about that from our listeners that email. Coming in even as we record right now. Wow. Is there a single SpongeBob movie or is there a series of movies? Uh, no, so there is just one movie that was released uh, theatrically uh, in 2004. Well, because you're a bit younger than Av and I, when Av and I were kids, it wasn't as much done to sort of park your kid in front of a TV to distract them or put, park them in front of a smartphone at a restaurant to distract them with a movie. Nowadays, I feel all parents do that at some point. And, and so I feel like I didn't, I don't remember watching movies when I was really, really little kid. Maybe I just also don't remember. I don't know about you, Av, uh, but I feel that's sort of one of the reasons a younger age movie is honorable mention for Will. I certainly didn't watch as many movies when I was a kid as kids today are able to. Just, you know, they just have access to at their fingertips to whatever you want to watch at any second. But I, I watched a bunch of movies growing up, you know, all the classics, um, or like, you know, classic kids movies, all the Disney movies, all, you know, all those 80 movies. I saw most of them when I was a little but, kid. But uh, did your parents use movies as a way when you were under five years old to distract you and whatnot? Because that's what parents do today, <laughs> no? Yeah, I guess. I, I, I don't remember <laughs> how my parents parented when I was five years old. I would imagine not as much as it's done today just because it's not as conducive to it. Importantly, as we established earlier, Av is the only parent of the three of us. So uh, you have a big advantage on the rest of us, Av. You can sort of, you can say both as your own childhood and as a father of children as well. The reality of just getting to see the same movie over and over and over again, the way that we did when we were kids, I think, because today just wouldn't be as likely to do that just because there are so many more options and you know there's the the YouTube and and the YouTube videos and Netflix and Amazon and just you could get any movie ever at any time whereas you know when I was home you know we had maybe a handful of VHS's in our house and you know you just cycle through those over and over and over again until you hopefully yeah, got something yeah. new once in a while Oh, I thought you were saying the opposite, which was today you can have a video on digital, so you can just watch it, boom, boom, boom. When I was a kid, we had very few VHSs, so I saw a movie once in theaters, and then that was it. Like, right. I couldn't so, you know, see it again. Yeah, when those like Disney movies would come out, we would watch Aladdin 40 times, because we, we had six movies in the house. So Aladdin was the new one, and we would basically watch that until we were sick of it, and then hopefully ask our parents to get us something else. As someone with a 12-year-old brother, and I've known him 
obviously my, my whole life, even with the access to Netflix and YouTube and stuff like that, there was a solid three months where he just watched The Little Mermaid every single day. So I don't think times have changed that much. All right. That's good to hear. I agree with Will. That's what I thought you were going with, Av, and then you sort of flipped it. But I think you're fair to flip it as well. Meaning I think today with digital access and the way kids' minds works, kids like will ask you to read them the same book. I just know for my nephews, and I have a lot of nephews thanks to Alex Trester, um, nephews will ask you to read them the same book time after time after time. Like they'll never grow bored of it. And I didn't grow up in a household where we had VHSs so much. We didn't really have video cassettes, um, which we can explain to you off air, Will, what that is, because I don't even think. My honorable mention, unless you want to SpongeBob SquarePants us a bit oh, more. Oh, no, let's move on. Okay. Um, I was considering going with Sandlot to Ob's Field of Dreams, but instead I'm going to put out Dark Crystal. Dark Crystal came out in 1982. I was born in 1985, spoiler. So I saw this movie on a video cassette. And the Dark Crystal, it's so fantastical. For years, I didn't remember what the movie was called, and I just remembered seeing it. There's so many scenes that are like deep in my mind. There was a babysitter who first showed it to me. And what's interesting about it is that we live in the age of everything from the 80s is being brought back into Netflix and uh, you know online uh, entertainment. They are now making a TV series that I think is a prequel to The Dark Crystal. So if you're like me and The Dark Crystal somewhere in the back of your mind, you can now watch an extended, uh, I think, Netflix special. Uh, maybe it's Amazon, I can't recall, that is set within the Dark Crystal universe. I don't know if you, did both you guys see The Dark Crystal? It's a little more yeah, uh, seen it. of, a, of a minor movie compared to what yeah, you guys I've seen mentioned. It. Big fan of the, the Skeksis. Yeah, it's like a real 80s movie, right? Well, oh yeah, it's, it's out there, man. It's like hardcore 80s. Well, uh, how about you start us off, give us your number three and your number two, and save your one. And then uh, Will and I will each jump in with our three and two as well. Sure. I know the rule was this was supposed to be movies that we watched before we were 10 years old. This came out when I was 10 years and like four months, but I'm gonna I'm gonna count it anyways in violation of your rules. When you're a kid, it's all the same. When you're a kid yeah. until you turn when you until you turn 11, yeah, you're still exactly. 10. So I'm going to go with Chris Columbus's 1993 Mrs. Doubtfire. Ooh. I know it's probably not a, a choice that most people would select. I I remember loving this movie. I would watch it over and over. I thought it was so hilarious. It made me fall in love with Robin Williams, and then I wanted to see like everything that he was in. I think it was like the first time when I saw a movie that I realized how much of a skill acting is because like the movie itself is kind of a movie about acting and what it means to become another person yeah. and be convincing in that role and like to what extent you actually become that person it's like he wasn't just acting like he actually became like an incredible parent slash caretaker for these kids that he had neglected when he was their actual father. Did you know him from other movies? Is that was the first time you saw Robin Williams? No, I mean, I, I had seen Aladdin, obviously, which came out the year before. Um, I, I don't remember if I had seen um, anything else before that. I certainly had not had the, had had the opportunity at that point to have seen his glorious Popeye role. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was only a more recent thing. But pretty quickly after that, he became like my favorite actor. I've, oh, you know what? Hook was also before that. So, you know, I was familiar with him, and I, I always had liked him, I guess. But to me, this was just, like, an amazing role for when I was 10 years old, to see someone basically play these different characters and doing the voices. I just thought it was incredible. It's just a really funny movie. It's a really sweet, heartwarming movie. It was also, like, one of the first movies, I think, that I could recall that doesn't end with, like, a happy ending. Yeah. Because, you know, it ends with he's trying to make it work, but, like, they basically take the kids away from him, and he needs to have only supervised visits. And I was kind of gobsmacked by that as a kid like every movie is supposed to, like of course you assume this is going to end with the family's going to come back together she's going to take him back everyone's going to live happily ever after and you're like whoa what is this this is not how movies are supposed to work you know some parents when they're angry they get along much better when they don't live together 
They don't fight all the time and they can become better people and much better mummies and daddies for you. And sometimes they get back together. And sometimes they don't, dear. And if they don't, don't blame yourself. I thought that was also just something that really has stuck with me. It's really one of my favorite movies. Do you go back and watch it? Like, did you make sure to show it to your kids? No, I haven't. I haven't shown oh. it to them yet. Because it's a number three. If it was number two or one, you'd show it to your kids. Yeah, maybe. I think they're they're probably still a little young That's for fair. it. How old is your oldest? My oldest is going to turn six in okay, October. Okay, so she has a few years to go before she gets Robin Williams in drag. Exactly. Just a really special '90s movie. Yeah, just to the point of like what I think this whole like movies from childhood is kind of yeah. about. Um, when I was watching The Last Black Man in San Francisco and they have just these shots of San Francisco, like all I could think about was Mrs. Doubtfire because just like those scenes of the houses and the streets and, the, and the, the trolleys, it's just like that's what I associate with San Francisco is all like the first time I'd ever seen it on screen. I mean, probably maybe Full House, but that was what came rushing to my head when I was watching that movie from this year. Will, I'm afraid that The Rock was the first movie you saw set in San Francisco. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> It may have been, it may have been. That's a very different oh, San Francisco than Mrs. Doubtfire. Give us your two. Yeah, my number two is, is one that is probably more more uh, widely held. We kind of alluded to earlier, it's Back to the Future. Uh, just the absolute go-to for any time you're gonna have any sort of time travel movie. Like, it, it's just basically being made like in comparison to Back to the Future. Like, you need to make sure the rules work. Are they consistent with how Back to the Future time travel works? Or are you doing something different? Like, that's what it's always, it's always gonna be the time, the, the comparison to. Where were you when you saw this movie? How old were you? Do you see it in theaters? I definitely did not see it in theaters when I was a child. I saw it probably at, I think I, I think I remember seeing it at somebody's house at a sleepover or a sleepover party, probably when I was like six or seven years old and we all loved it. And then we like, we all got together like the next week to watch Back to the Future 2 and then the next week to watch Back to the Future 3. Just like real, just like funny movie with great characters. The one thing that I've thought about later in future life is just like how horrible the parents are, the McFlies, that they basically let their high school kid go over to a crazy scientist's house every night. And just like, yeah, that, that's probably fine. There's a ton of teenage movies, I feel, that forget about uh, time travel, they reference it. I've actually never seen it, and I was planning to drop it on us as a classics corner sometime soon. Wow. You've never seen Back to the Future? I have future? never seen Back to the Future. Wow. I, I went through a period where I, I didn't like... First off, I didn't like Michael J. Fox for some odd reason for years. But I don't know. I think I was a little too young for it when it came out, and therefore I was able to skip it. I actually did have the opportunity to see it in theaters about 10 years ago. It was re-released for the 25th anniversary. Now, to be clear, it was not the 25th anniversary of when the movie came out. It was the 25th anniversary of the night that Marty McFly went back of course. in time. Of course. I got to see it at a, a theater. I think it was at in the, the Times Square AMC with a full crowd that was just like standing and cheering every 30 seconds. One of the most fun times I've ever had in a movie with a, with a group of friends. It was really great. It movie totally holds up. I guess up. the movie came out the year I was born, so that <laughs> explains why I missed out on some of the <laughs> on some of when it first came out but I guess you didn't go see it uh, you're a few years older than I did you enjoy the sequels as much I think the the second one is very fun but probably a little bit too silly and like doesn't quite add up although it's kind of uh, fortuitous or unfortuitous in terms of how you see that uh, the plot how it had us played out in real life the third I one I think they say they're bringing I think they say they're bringing it back right I think there's some oh, new sequel or new TV series it, it gets that like 80s nostalgia that, yeah. that bad Steven Spielberg movie yeah so captured. you know the Biff the, the, the Biff character is overtly based on Donald Trump and it's if you see those movies you're just like yeah this is exactly what's what's uh, what's ha what has happened the third movie is not good it's uh it's unfortunate you know as third movies tend to be we're I would say we're 
lucky that the second one was as good as it was, and the first one is just an all-time classic. Maybe they just redo the third to relaunch the, the series in 2020. Yeah, I see here that it says, uh, Robert Zemeckis has final rights to all films in the Back to the Future franchise, and he has stated that he will block all attempts to remake or reboot the original film. So I don't know what that me- I don't know what that means about a fourth film, but he's not. He doesn't yeah, want. Robert Zemeckis is too busy making Welcome to Marwin too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know he only could uh, only the highest quality. Exactly. For Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, he has yeah. he has priorities. Both my three and my two are going back to the wonderful year of two thousand five. Uh, I'll keep this brief because I would expect. How old were you? Uh, I was eight Dog. years old. Okay. Eight years old, and saw both of these in theaters. Obviously, I would guess that neither of you have seen these movies. But, you know, we'll find out. Uh, my number three is Zathura. Have either of you seen it? I have never heard of that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Same here. So it's basically the very low-rent Jumanji. Uh, it's uh-huh. about these kids who find a board game in their house, their new house they move into. It's just like Jumanji, but it's in space. It was also a very early Kristen Stewart movie, but it just fulfills everything about a young eight-year-old boy's fantasies. Finding a board game, getting an astronaut show up at your house... Your sister, who you hate, getting cryogenically frozen. All the all the eight-year-old wish list items. Let's play the game. Fine. What's wrong with it? You broke it. Oh, look, there's the card, see? It fixed itself. Caught cheating, automatic ejection. Does it mean me? Well, you did move me. He's the one who cheated. I don't think it's a very great movie now, but it really influenced my love of board games. Is it connected to Jumanji? I think it's a spiritual sequel. It doesn't have like any of the same characters, but I believe it was made by like the same. It says here that it's it's not directly connected to Jumanji, but it, it's marketed as taking place in the same universe. Gotcha. So it's sort of like a the world of DC. Yeah, and apparently there's another Jumanji movie coming. I just saw a trailer oh, yeah. for it when I went to see Spider-Man the other night. And I was like, really? We're doing we're, we're doing more of these? <laughs> did you ever see uh, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle? That's the, the, the one with the rock, the first yeah, one? Yeah, the one with the rock. Yeah, I saw it. I did not like it at all. Oh, really? <laughs> I think I liked it more than most people, but... I love the original Jumanji. Oh, yeah, it's a classic. My number two is Sky High. Uh, it was, I think it was actually a Disney... I believe it was released in theaters, though. It's really about this high school uh, for superheroes. And the main character is the son of these two really big famous superheroes, is having trouble with growing up. Sort of a coming-of-age movie, you know, with superheroes. And it does a lot of great parody of the classic superhero tropes. This is before we had superhero movies everywhere, so to be making fun of the tropes... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is, uh, I give it credit. Well, like, you know, the comic book tropes and everything. Yeah. I'm looking at this review on Empire for Sky High. Uh-huh. It says, Sky High has the potential to become your favorite film ever if you are eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, sounds like a very apt description. Yeah. I never heard of the movie. Me neither. It's kind of interesting in that, spoiler, my movies are all movies all of you would recognize, and I imagine that's going to be true for Av as well. And this goes back to something I've said earlier, which is we live in a day and age of just mass content and mass accessibility to content. So, Will, you were able to see movies that impacted you and you really remember that aren't the flagship summer movie as opposed to often myself yeah will have you ever seen this the tv series clone high because it yeah. sounds similar oh yes i have seen clone high that was the the russo brothers i thought show. it was made by the uh bill lawrence the guy who makes scrubs oh no i think uh clone high was uh, phil and yeah, lord. Phil lord it says here yeah got yeah. it yeah i love that show it's so funny but it, it sounds like a similar high concept as uh 
Sky High. Yeah. Was Sky High a success, or Will, were you the only child who loved it? Uh, well, all the kids at my school really liked it. Uh, I have no idea if it actually made a big cultural impact. It made $86 million at the box office, so I guess, like, modest financial success. Look, you're giving of ideas to show his kids, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. Let me quickly share my three and two. 1982's The Secrets of Nim. It's a gorgeous animation about a mouse who finds a bunch of lab genius rats and they help him sort of save his family. We were captured, put in cages, and sent to a place called Nim. Twenty rats and eleven mice were given injections. One night, I looked upon the words under the cage door and understood them. He had become intelligent. I never quite remembered as I grew older what exactly the movie was, but it left this fantastical sense sort of similar to The Dark Crystal, and I've always remembered it, and over the years I've forgotten what the movie was called. Every other cartoon I've ever seen reminds me in some ways of The Secrets of Nim. It, it has this place in my mind that I can't kick out. And then my number two is up there with Mrs. Doubtfire in terms of like an all-time classic, probably even more, which is Home Alone. came out in 1990. I saw it in theaters, I believe. And, you know, I think I saw all the movies afterwards. The actor, the character. Home Alone impacted me in so many ways in terms of, you know, being terrified of being left alone, playing by myself when the rest of my family went out, the way I related to adults, the way I related to my siblings, the way I related to my parents. Home Alone is maybe the childhood movie of the 90s. I don't know if Av would agree with me. Absolutely. We once, on like a long uh, road trip, we were trying to come up with what's the movie from our childhood that you would be most shocked to learn that a peer of yours had not seen and it was unanimously agreed that Home Alone is the answer. Like if somebody told you they had not seen Home Alone, you would immediately cut off all contact with them forever because that's just like unacceptable. Yeah, and also you'd wonder how they had matured into a person you would want to interact with. How could you have gone through life and not had seen Home Alone at some point, let alone, you know, 50 times? Will, when did you first see Home Alone? It came out in 1990, so it was waiting for you. Home Alone and The Secrets of Nim, uh, they were both uh, classics from my childhood as well. Oh, nice. Okay. Since you missed the sort of Home Alone crate, because you didn't see it then, Will, I imagine it was more good movie, but did it impact you in the way it sort of impacted me? It was definitely really impactful for me. I actually saw Home Alone 2 Lost in New York before I saw the first one. Yeah, I mean, they definitely had a big impact on me. I think it's just like <laughs> if a movie comes out in theaters while you're a kid, yeah. like gravitate more towards it more because all the other kids are talking about it. Yeah, it was Home Alone was a really big deal when it came out. I think I might have seen it like two or three times in theaters because just like everyone wanted to just keep going back to see it because it was just so much fun. My biggest unanswered question for Home Alone is that I, I want to someday understand why the McAllisters had so many mannequins in their house because <laughs> it's just truly, truly bizarre. Yeah, and a lot of sharp objects. I mean, there's just a lot of accidents waiting to happen in that home. I associate that home as my home. Like when I would close my eyes as a kid in my home, I would imagine I was living in their house. Uh, what's your number one? Take us home. My number one movie, this will not, will not come as a surprise to anybody that knows me well, is Victor Fleming's 1939 adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. I've probably seen this movie a hundred times in my life. I've seen it already wow. ten times with my daughter, probably. She also absolutely loves it. It's Joseph Campbell, 101, Hero's Journey. The the three friends and just meeting the, each one of them one by one. The scary witch and the, the, a land of magic. Probably the first movie that I could think of where I was like drawn to like the mythology of it and wanted to just immerse myself further in a, in a world and learn more about all the different elements of it. Uh, there's like a series of like dozens books. of books. Yeah, have yeah, you read I, the books? I, 
I read a bunch of them when I was a kid. I can't say that I remember many of them. I would just like I would just like eat up anything Wizard of Oz related. There was like a 1985 or so movie I think it was called The Return to Oz. It's complete trash, but I've probably seen it 30 times. I've seen animated series. You know, I went to see Wicked, of course. Any 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 Wizard of Oz related thing that comes out, I always go to see it. The James Franco Oz movie a few years ago uh, was Oz the Great and Powerful. Oh, that that was bad. Horrible, but I went to see it in theaters like opening weekend. You know, I'm just a total Wizard of Oz junkie. It's one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. I will never get sick of it. It affected me in so many ways that I probably can't even. Do you remember watching it for the very first time with your kids? Were you like watching the movie more? Or you were watching your daughter watching I mentioned it a few times like oh there's this movie that daddy really loves you know we're gonna see it one day and she just started asking to see it I was thought she might be scared of it so we like we watched one of the like animated versions of, of the story that we found on Netflix somewhere and she really liked it and she kept saying you know I want to see the the daddy version so I was like all right let's <laughs> let's nice. go for it and we just like sat down and we watched it and she loved it she asks to watch it all the time now it's like it's nothing there's really nothing that makes me happier than when she says can we watch the Wizard of Oz today that's awesome Will, what is future Father Will going to show his kids as his number one childhood movie? I don't know if I'd be a great parent if I shared this to my kids, but my number one is uh, something that more people will probably have heard of. Uh, not something that I saw in theaters, but also something I saw when I was eight. It is the 1982 horror movie Poltergeist. So this was the first uh, horror movie I ever saw. This directed... explains so much about Will Seaman, guys. Yeah, so much. Definitely. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Our number one movies are, it's the DNA of each of us as a movie fan. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, Will, please continue. Uh, yeah, this traumatized me so much as a kid. Uh, the clown attack scene is... one of the most disturbing things I've ever gone through as a child. I don't know who let me see this. Uh, they probably shouldn't have. But yeah, this is directed by Toby Hooper. Uh, Did you see it by a... yourself? Uh, no, I saw it with like, I think one of my sisters. And they had a bunch of friends over and I just happened to be in the room while they were watching it. I did not know what I was getting into. I think that's so important because as a little kid, I think a number of the movies you see are adult movies that you sort yeah. of sneak into while your parents on a Saturday night are watching a movie or your, or your older siblings are. And those can be, as we'll say, like those can be as impactful as the made-for-kid movies that we've hyped on until now. Do yeah. you credit it with your, your love of horror? Yeah, I definitely think so. The few years after that, I became like really fascinated with just like seeking out different like scary stories online um, for a long time until I was like 14. Uh, I would just like look up Wikipedia plot summaries of horror movies, but then not watch them because I was too scared. So I think this played a very big part in that, and now my eventual love of horror movies in general. Nice. Okay, well, we were going to come back to uh, your number one, Will, every time we talk horror movies in the future. Now that you've given us this ammo, um, probably the most impactful uh, episode we've ever done, given that we've identified our movie DNA. My number one came out in 1987 when I was two years old, so I did not see it in theaters. But it's the movie I've seen more times than any other movie. I somehow, every single time when I was a kid, it, what, we used to vote in class as which movie we would watch when we got to watch a movie in school for some reason. And this was always the number one movie voted for. And that is The Princess Bride. There's so many things I could say about The Princess Bride. Amazing cast, amazing script, amazing story. I don't know if it matches up with what Alfred was saying before in terms of the classic hero's journey, but uh, it may. Um, I finally read the book years later. I didn't even realize it was based upon an absolutely redonkulous book, which is, you know, much more meta even than the movie. 
Uh, and the Princess Bride to me, when I think of being that hero and wanting to change the world and sort of wanting to be there for your friends, I think of scenes in The Princess Bride and not necessarily the scenes of the Man in Black, per se. You know, scenes of Inigo Montoya and the giant, the, the, the princess, and others as well. It's iconic as a movie and it's iconic in terms of how it identified values for me. It's, it's much more personal in a way that Home Alone and certainly The Secrets of Nim is in that sense. I assume both you guys have seen it and probably seen it several times. I have seen it once. I, wow. I didn't watch it till I was much older. I mean, I did not appreciate it the way that many of my friends who have seen it, I know, I know it has this like very strong cult following. I suspect that it probably has somewhat to do with when you watch it because it didn't really resonate with me. But I, I know that it's a very beloved movie by, by many people. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it's a classic. Uh, Wait, Will, you agree with Av or with me? Uh, I think I... And you can't agree with both of us. <laughs> I was trying to say I was trying to say I agree with you, Sammy, uh, that it's uh, a classic, and I watched it several times growing up. Av, I even saw scenes from the movie in college classes. Forget about elementary school. I had a psychology professor who wanted to show a scene from... The wine. ...where they're having the riddle over the wine. The production behind the movie itself is amazing. The dueling scene, they set out to make the greatest dueling scene ever. Andre the Giant's back was so messed up that while he was always carrying people in the movie, he was actually physically unable to do so. The other story I always remember is Mandy Patankin, who plays Inigo Montoya, was mourning the recent death of his father from cancer. So when he sought revenge against the six-fingered man, the actor has said he channeled his despair and rage over his father's death. To the point that the six-fingered man, the actor who plays him, Christopher Guest of Saturday Night Live, was generally terrified that Montoya, Inigo Montoya, was going to kill him on set. A lot of times with these, like, childhood movies, it's like, if you didn't see it then, then it just, like, doesn't necessarily work as well later. And, you know, you, you, there might be movies that I appreciate as an adult, but it's because it's I already have a connection to that movie that, like, it, that it holds up. Whereas, like, if somebody else saw it for the first time when they were 30, they'd be like, what, what is this? So true. Let's jump to our classics corner and, and bring this to a close. I will go first by saying I do not have a Classics Corner. We have a special episode coming out later this month, which will drop on uh, listeners very soon. And that I saw so many movies for that special episode, I did not have a chance to see a classic. This month in general, I was going on a sort of Keanu Reeves binge. I, I saw Always Be My Maybe, the new movie, uh, that I decided to go check out last year's Destination Wedding with Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. Then I decided to check out Knock Knock by one of my most hated slash favorite directors Eli Roth uh, because I'd heard that it was very bad. It's an erotic thriller starring Keanu Reeves and his Eli Roth, the director's girlfriend of the time, uh, who Keanu Reeves has... What year did it come out? Uh, came out 2015, a true classic. Exactly. Nice. Yes. Very weird. Keanu Reeves has sex with the director's real-life girlfriend in the movie. It's just a terrible movie, though. Uh or the post for the po this podcast, I'm going to add a link to one scene from the movie that will tell you all you need to know about how terrible it is. Hilariously bad. And I highly recommend it to anyone who likes bad movies. Classics Corner is sort of our excuse to see a really great movie from the past, so I'm glad Will is staying true to form and finding the crap from history, because I know Forky would appreciate that if no one Yes, else. definitely. Um, I'm trash. Where are you on Classics? I'm going to do a three-in-one. I, I, I finally got around to seeing a, uh, a very obscure, little-known trilogy of movies that I'm sure no one has ever seen called The Lord of the Rings. Wow. Yeah, it, uh, 
it's it's been overdue for a while. I saw Summer most of the first one way back when, and I don't even remember really watching it. And like, I, I never really gave myself credit for having seen it, so I finally got around to it. You know, there, there's obviously no amount of praise that is too much in terms of just the production quality and just like the the building of a world and everything that comes with that. Just absolutely astonishing. I found that uh, for me at least, the plot was a little. Con not I wouldn't say convoluted, just like kind of opaque, and I couldn't really understand who everyone was in the big picture and why they were doing things. I su suspect that if you, you know, there's probably a lot of stuff in the books that fills in context and gaps that I just like didn't really feel super engaged with the plot or most of the characters um, in a way that really made me like, in, you know, enthralled by the movies, um, which was a little disappointing because, you know, I, I was hoping to really love them the way so many people do, but, you know, they're still just like absolutely marvelously well well made movies that anyone who enjoys movies will enjoy. Yeah, I'm glad you finally got a chance to check those out. Well, thanks for joining us this month, Av. I think personally this might be our best episode yet. We'll be back in your ears in a few weeks with a special episode which we will introduce to you when it when it drops. Will Av speak to you soon. Later. Um, I'll talk to you guys next month. Enjoy your time in the movies. Bye. When the road rough ahead in your miles and miles from your nice warm bed you just remember what your past said boy you got a friend in me yeah you got a friend